You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. is Research for the Real World. Hi, I'm Emily McLeod and I'm a PhD researcher at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're exploring the myriad ways IOE has established research-led relationships across London. We'll be diving into rigorous research evidence and innovative solutions to tackle complex challenges in our capital. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Professor George Plubidis. George is Professor of Population Health and Statistics at the UCL Social Research Institute and currently holds posts of Director of Research and Principal Investigator of the National Child Development Study and the 1970 British Cohort Study at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies here at Iowa. George is a multidisciplinary quantitative social scientist and a longitudinal surveys methodologist. His research interests relate to socioeconomic and demographic determinants of health over the life course and the mechanisms that underlie generational differences in health and mortality. George, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely being here. Thanks, George. So, George, I'm keen to learn more about your work with longitudinal and specifically the birth cohort studies here at IOE. But first, it would be great to get to know a bit more about you. Can you start by telling me a bit about your own education and how you got to be where you are now? Well, it, you know, it has been a long journey, right? And uh, I can say, you know, I have been very, very, very lucky, right? You know, I'm from Athens, Greece originally, grew up in Athens and so on, but I did my first degree here in, in the UK and my master's, and then I did a PhD in Greece, but with some scholarship in the European Union and so on. Now, I, I think how I ended up working with population-based longitudinal surveys, which I think is the most interesting bit. To be very honest, until my my first postdoctoral job, which was at the University of Cambridge, the Department of Psychiatry, I had no idea that the birth cohorts or the other fantastic longitudinal surveys that the UK has, of course, even existed. I started, you know, many years ago at the University of Cambridge, Department of Psychiatry, using the 1946 British birth cohort, which is also hosted at UCL. And you can imagine my how amazed I was when I realized such great data exists, that large samples, population-based, with so much data in so, ma- in so many various aspects of life, following people from birth and over their life course. And then a couple of months into working in, the, within, uh, in this post, right, I, I realized that, hey, you know what, in the UK, it's not only one, there are more. There are more birth cohorts. Uh, and I got interested in the birth cohort generally, the data and the important policy relevant questions we can answer, and not just the birth cohorts, but all the other longitudinal surveys the UK has, which is you know one of the things that the UK is world, truly a world leader. So, I mean, my, and then you know gradually all my research and all my interest has evolved around birth cohorts, and I was very lucky that in, in 2014 I was offered this post at the Center for Longitudinal Studies, and here we are now. 
It sounds like a, a nice trajectory. My own research follows young people's career trajectories, so I'm always fascinated to hear how people got to be where they are now. And of course, this season of Research for the Real World is all about using evidence to find solutions to the particular challenges faced by our capital city. So with that in mind, what does London mean to you? Oh, wow. A lot of things. Well, it's, I, I'm a Londoner, right? I and mean, London is home. London and Athens, because I grew up in Athens, both London and Athens are home. So, but I love London. I think it's, it's, it's a great place, a global city. I love the diversity and all the things London has to offer. That's not to say that there aren't problems, right? Of course, there are issues of inequality and so on. But I think, broadly speaking, London gives us a good idea of how we can live together and how we can overcome difficulties together, despite problems and so on. And I think it's a blueprint for the future, London of how things can become better in the future and so on. I'll stop there. I love London. I'm sold. No, absolutely. Yeah, London is my second home as well, but it's, yeah, it's such a welcoming city. So, George, your work makes use of data from birth cohort studies, several of which are run by our Centre for Longitudinal Studies. And you've mentioned that the UK is quite unusual and groundbreaking in the amount of longitudinal birth cohort studies that we have. So can you first tell our listeners what a birth cohort study is and summarise what those studies are and the kinds of analysis that they facilitate? Yes, of course. I think, well, birth cohorts are unique. Let me start first about talking a little bit about longitudinal data, because birth cohorts are a, a very specific kind of a longitudinal survey. Longitudinal data, longitudinal surveys, in, if, you, if, you look in, if you think of statistics jargon, is simply to say following the same people over time. It's a very simple idea. It's difficult to do so. It requires a lot of resources and funding, especially if you want to have a large samples which are representative of the population. And that's very important. Being representative of the population is very important in order to do policy-relevant research. But it's a simple idea. It's simply collecting data, collecting information on various aspects of people's lives, of the same people across time, over time, and so on for many years. Now, we have a lot of longitudinal surveys in the UK, but what is unique about the UK is the birth cohorts. Now, what is a birth cohort? Well, it's in the title, I guess, right? It's birth. Birth is in the title. So it's a, it's, it's a very special kind of longitudinal survey where we follow people from birth, from the moment they are born, we follow them over their life course. And of course, by them means that when uh, around birth and childhood and early years, we collect information about their families, about their parents and so on. Gradually, when these people get, get older, you know, they, in adulthood, we collect information about them, their children and so on. Now, you know, it, it makes a perfect sense. I think it's very intuitive that to say, look, it's great if you have all this life course information and this data allows us to engage and do research within the life course approach. It's kind of intuitive. It's great to have this data, but it's not easy, as I said, right? Because first of all, there are a lot of resources needed. And also you, we need to be careful and uh, make sure that these people, you know, uh, stay in the study and, you know, they, they, they allow us to use their information and so on for a very long time. Another unique aspect of the, of the UK is that it's not that UK has let's say, one national birth cohort, that would have been great, even if it was just one, right? But as we speak, we do have four national birth cohort studies. The 1946 British birth cohort, the first one in the series and the oldest birth cohort in the world, which is also hosted at UCL. The 1958 British birth cohort, the 1970 British birth cohort, and the Millennium cohort study. And the latter three are hosted at the Center for Longitudinal Studies, where I work. But all four of those cohorts hosted at UCL. And also, just to say that it's quite possible that in the near future, we will have two 
new birth cohorts. So we have more generate, which is excellent because, of course, we can understand and do great policy relevant research for new generations and so on. Now, the fact that we have all these great life course studies, right, birth cohorts and so on, not only allows us to answer policy relevant questions within the life course of a particular generation, but crucially to compare generations, to engage in understanding of generational differences in various aspects of, of a generational difference, right? Because I think largely a lot of the change, a lot of the social change we observe in our societies is because of generational differences or similarities, right? There are not only differences, there are similarities as well. And the British birth cohorts allow us to actually do this on a large scale, on a population-based scale with large representative samples. That's really fascinating. And I'm glad to hear that there might be a couple more in the pipeline, because if the last one was Millennium, we're certainly due another one. That would be fascinating to learn about people born today and how their lives go on. Absolutely. I wanted to ask about, so my own research is, is longitudinal as well, but it's much smaller qualitative sample of, of tracking young people as they go through education. And I found that as the young people get older, they've got this affection for the study and it's much easier easier to to contact them because they've been part of the study for over half their lives now. Is it the same for your study, which is mainly quantitative in your research when you're contacting the participants? Well, I think participant engagement, broadly speaking, right, and contacting participants is a large large part of the work we do, right? And keeping the participants, of course, very well informed, right, of what goes on in the study and engaging them in the study is very important. It's of the utmost importance, I must say, in the sense that that keeps participants interested and engaged and actually keeps participants giving us back data and information about their lives, right, which is what the studies are about. So there is there is a, a lot of our work, and you know the Center for Longitudinal Studies has various teams, right? There is a research team, the survey team, data team, uh, tracing team, our media team, our comms team, and so on. Various of our teams are, uh, are involved in participant engagement and in contacting participants. And so now this is of course happens when the sample has been selected and so on. Of course, the probability sample has been selected in a way where it has very well known and tractable statistical properties, which of course is, is related to representativeness. This is done this was done in the past in a particular way. Now nowadays of course science has progressed. We're doing it in a slightly different way and, and so on. For example, the early cohorts were samples born in a particular week, right? which is great because that increases phones rate. So you had like more than 90% of births in a particular week taking part in the study, which is great. Of course, we know we know that since then, right? We know that maybe there are some seasonal effects. So how we sample now covers the whole year round and so on. But once this is done, once this is done, that the sample is selected, then we start the participant engagement to begin with, of course, it's with the parents of the cohort members and so on, right? And everything. But this is a dynamic process and a process that keeps on across the life course of the studies, let's say, how we contact people. And we do this regularly in various ways, be it birthday cards or information about updates about the studies and so on. Mm. A lot of work behind the scenes then. It's not just uh, scientists and researchers, definitely. They sound like such obviously such rich data sets with a lot of potential for uses in the real world, which is what this podcast is all about. Can you give us some examples of policy relevant findings that have come from research done with the British birth cohort studies? 
Yes, I mean, absolutely. Just before I get into some, you know, these are long-running studies, right? To give to, to give our audience and, and those, what is data, the data these studies collect. As you said, they're very multidisciplinary studies. We collect data. There are surveys. Of course, there are many questions about people's circumstances and so on. But it's not only, the, it's, the, it's not just surveys. This, the British birth cohorts, for example, there are linked data administrative data about education, about uh, economics and so on. There are geographical linkages about the areas we live. So the areas the cohort members live, we can actually have link information from these areas, understand the potential impact these, uh, you know, these characteristics might have on their lives. These studies are fully genotyped as well. So there is genetic research uh, as well. We have linkages with hospitalization data and so on. So it, it's not just, we say that longitudinal surveys, but there is much more to it. It's, they are much, much broader, and this is why multidiscipl- truly multidisciplinary research happens with a cohort and or research in specific disciplines, but various disciplines, ranging from clinical epidemiology to sociology and perhaps from, and from anthropology to demography and statistics, right? So it's, it's very broad. Now, to give you, to come back to your question, because I think I'm, I'm not really answering your question thus far. Sorry, I think. I think it was a good opportunity to give some examples of how broad the data are and how these studies are not just surveys, right? They're much broader. To give, because these are long-standing studies, right? I think I will start with an example many years ago that a paper that was published in the early 70s. So because some of the things that we take for granted now in terms of policy, right, and so on, it wasn't always the case. And I will give you the example of maternal smoking during pregnancy, which of course now... For example, nowadays, right, it's it's well-known policy, right? It's not some, it's very, it's, you know, it's detrimental. It shouldn't be happening. Generally, smoking is detrimental, obviously, right? But maternal smoking during pregnancy. Now, one of the first papers that picked up a signal on how maternal smoking during pregnancy can be detrimental, uh, for example, uh, can increase the likelihood of low birth weight, for example, and later on, fetal mortality and so on, was published data from the 1958 British birth cohort. And, you know, we take this for granted now, right, as a kind of public health policy, but that was one finding. It was published in the early 70s and, of course, has shaped public health policy since then, right, along, of course, with other studies that picked up similar signals and so on. So that's one example from, you know, many years, many years in the past. Another example, a bit different example, is that there's a lot of evidence, for example, about parental investment how parental investment can improve outcomes. One such example of parental investment is about reading for pleasure. So there is evidence from, the and, and this, most of this evidence is from the uh, 1970 British birth cohort, that reading, parents reading to, the, to their children early on in life, at age five, then and so on, has a positive impact on their cognitive, cognitive ability at age 16 and so on, but also has a long, long-term impact on, let's say, their vocabulary, either, even in midlife. And, you know, parental investment is, is an interesting finding because it also, it can be one of the mechanisms that can actually produce, can actually mitigate, for example, the impact of early life disadvantage, which is another of the important findings of the cohorts. The birth cohorts, the British birth cohorts have shown that early life economic disadvantage has a long-term impact on various outcomes in adulthood and in later life, including health, social, and economic outcomes. These are just some examples of findings. I will finish with one finding that, happened, you know, it, that let's say the, the papers, the scientific papers have been published in the last 10 or 15 years on, on, on that specific finding. The importance of early life mental health. Of course, mental health is important and is an important outcome and has uh, become more prominent in the recent years. But the, in the British birth cohorts, they are the major studies that have shown that early life mental health is strongly associated with various outcomes in adulthood. And that includes health, mortality, social, and economic outcomes. And this is one of the findings that has been 
robust and has been replicated in the, in the British birth cohorts, um, not only just one, but in various of the generations we, you know, we uh, collect data from in the UK. That's fascinating that things that we almost like take for granted in society now, the cohort studies have, have helped us understand them. I, I had no idea, especially about the smoking in pregnancy one, that's such a widely known and talked about phenomenon and great that the cohort studies helped us kind of understand that a bit more. And also, as you said at the start, it's not just the data that you're collecting, but it's the linked data. And I could see that the, the relevance of that medical data and not just of the participant, but of their parents and or children, really like adding to that wider data set and improving and adding to that evidence, absolutely. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about the pandemic, which is sadly still ongoing as we talk. And I understand that the team that you work in responded really quickly to the outbreak of COVID-19 in the UK. But given that no one quite anticipated the pandemic, it must have been quite hard to tailor your work to it. So how did you and your colleagues use but also add to the existing research in order to maximise what you could learn in relation to the pandemic? Yes, I think the pandemic, you know, it, uh, it wasn't anything we or anybody else anticipated, right? So it caught us by surprise as, as the whole world. In terms of this, of the Center for Longitudinal Studies and the place where I work, right, and the birth cohorts we host, the cohorts we host, right, and so on, what we did was we knew that we had to collect data during the pandemic, we had to understand the pandemic, right? What is going on during the pandemic and so on. But also to make sure that we have data during the pandemic to help us understand the future impact of the pandemic and how to mitigate this. So I think the great value of the British birth cohorts were it's twofold, really. Yes, we collected data during the pandemic, and I will come back to it on how we did it and so on. I think the great value is that the data we collected during the pandemic will be used in 5, 10, 20 years' time and so on to understand how we can mitigate the impact of the pandemic. And the impact of the pandemic, be it, of course, the virus itself, you know, COVID-19 illness and so on, long COVID, very important, but also the, the impact, the social and economic impact or health impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions like lockdowns, of course, and social distancing. Now, what we did early on from March 2020 was we decided we had to collect data in all our cohorts simultaneously, including the 1946 cohort, which is hosted at UCL as well. And we work very closely with our colleagues in the, in the MRC unit for livelihood health and aging that hosts the F1946 cohort. And this one, actually the very first time ever where data were collected simultaneously from all national British birth cohorts. Yes, and that was, as you can imagine, a lot of effort, right? Because it was, we had to collect, it's, it's quite different when you have a schedule and say, look, this year, usually what happens at CLS, we say, look, okay, this year we're collecting data from the Millennium Cohort Study. And then there's another year, so it's kind of, there's a sequence. And so the resources of the center of the various teams, right, are kind of allocated in that way. So, in the, but in this case, there wasn't, that there was, we didn't have this, well, luxury, I would say, because <laughs> it's, it's a luxury to have time. So we had to do data collection in all cohorts at once, and not only just in the beginning of the pandemic. So we did a web survey. We embedded a web survey, so a data collection within those cohorts. And there are some distinct advantages of doing so. And I will come back to this in a while. But what we did, we collected data from all cohorts by a web survey in early on in the pandemic. Then again, in, in around September, October 2020. And for the third time, early on in 2021. So you have like three different time points of the pandemic where we collect the data. And this data, of course, it's a web survey. So there is survey, but in addition to this, 
We also did seroprevalence, so we collected blood samples to, under, to, to be able to understand COVID-19 and whether people had COVID-19 or not, not only by self-report, but also from serology data. And of course, there are very no new linkages that happens through the national core studies, which we are collaborating with, linkages with hospitalization, hospital data and so on, electronic health records to bring into the, in the cohorts and understand furthermore, uh, you know, COVID-19, long COVID and so on. So there was this huge effort that happened uh, to have the data, the data are available. And it's not only that the CLS research team are using the data, I must say that the CLS data are freely available to researchers worldwide, which is very important. This data, of course, the birth cohorts have been used worldwide and from the UK and elsewhere in the world, of course, for various types of research. And the data we collected during the pandemic, of course, have been used already and will be, hopefully will be used later, you know, in the coming years to understand and, meet, and importantly, mitigate the impact to inform policies that will aim to mitigate the impact of the pandemic. So yeah, it was we had to collect uh, a lot of data in a short period of time, if it got a long story short. But I think the, through because of the efforts of the fantastic team of the various teams we have at the Center for Longitudinal Studies, it was possible. And of course, we have produced some really interesting, I hope, really interesting research based on this data, us, but also other users of the CLS data in the UK and elsewhere. Absolutely. It's such a great resource that other researchers can use straight away, which I think is another unique aspect of the British cohort studies that other researchers can can access it. And also such a great example of the, the different cohorts being able to compare between the two, because surely how the pandemic impacted those different age groups is going to be really different. So yeah, but it does sound like a lot of work when you weren't anticipating it. And great that you did it not just once as well, but um, multiple times throughout the pandemic, because obviously we just, we didn't know, did we, that it would be going on for this long. Yeah, really, really great to understand that more. But before we kind of wrap up today's chat, I wanted to speak to you about the focus of our uh, podcast season at the moment, which is London. So we're all all about understanding how research evidence can be used to tackle challenges in London. So I wanted to ask you how the findings of the British birth cohort studies help to tackle some of the complex challenges that we have in the capital specifically. Sure, of course. One thing about the British birth cohorts, right? they are national studies, right? so they, they, they are representative samples of the population. For example, the findings I mentioned, or a couple of one or two pandemic-led findings, I will mention shortly, are of course applicable to London. Just to give you an example, we during the pandemic we looked into the furlough scheme and whether it was it had it was a very very important scheme, right? Very important policy. At some point, I think about 11 million people were furloughed, right? And so, so we looked at okay, was furlough maybe detrimental to people's health behavior, health rate behavior, mental health. And what we found was that furlough not only was positive, of course, as we know, in terms of the economic aspect, because 80% of people's salaries was covered by the furlough scheme, but and but also we found that it wasn't detrimental when it comes to health behavior and and mental health as well. So and that that's a finding that you know applies to the whole whole Britain, right? And of course applies to London as well. Having said that, and of course, the, the examples I gave before about the examples about the historic examples of, that I gave before about findings, of course, apply to London. However, some of the risks, because these are large population-based samples, we can do research that compares urban areas, London, for example, to non, non-rural areas, for example, or do specific research in London. I have two examples in mind that are have you know I think are re- very relevant to London. As I mentioned before, one of the things we have in the British birth cohort is that we can link data 
area level information where our cohort member cohort members live we can link it to the information in the cohorts so this is an example from the millennium cohort a very recent paper that study that we did where we investigated the association between fast food outlet density and obesity we did find an association especially in those cohort members whose mothers did not have a university degree so we're picking up an association of course you can think that you know the fast food outlet density is larger in urban areas more often than not right so that that has important implications for london right and for if we, for example for policy relevant type of interventions that might want to you know reduce obesity levels generally in london and elsewhere but thinking of that fast food outlets the density of fast food outlets is greater in london compared to you know uh, rural places and so on so that's one that's one example of a recent finding that is applicable to london another another example that is also, I think, related to London. There has been work uh, in various longitudinal surveys, but also in some of the British birth cohorts, linking air pollution with, for example, mental health or cognitive ability, finding a that pollution has a detrimental impact on mental health and cognitive ability. And that, I think, is also, of course, pollution. London, we know that one of the things that, that you know, it's a priority, I think, a policy priority for, for our mayor as well, that to reduce pollution levels in London as well. So I think this is another type of research that which has been done in the cohort, which has very specific policy implications for London. And so timely as well, yeah. Thank you, George. Before we go, thinking ahead, what's next for you? Do you have any projects planned for the future? Well, uh, a lot, uh, I think, but I, 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 I uh, you know, one, one of the great things working with such great data and the British birth cohort is that there are always really, really interesting projects that one can be involved, right, and so on, or lead and everything. I, I will just mention a couple of things that I think are very important for, especially in relation to the pandemic, right, because, you know, we're, unfortunately, we're still in, in the pandemic, hopefully, you know, in a long goodbye phase, but we're still in the pandemic. But so we are still, for example, we are collecting data as we speak from the 1958 uh, and the 1970 British birth cohorts and next steps, another cohort study, which is also hosted at CLS, we will be collecting data from the Millennium Cohort Study next year. And this data, of course, it's again data from various aspects of people's lives and so on, and will help us understand the short-term impact of the pandemic and how we can mitigate the pandemic. That's one thing that is happening as we speak in terms of data collection. I would also like to mention that at CLS, we are heavily involved in the National Core Studies Initiative. There are six national core studies. One of them is the Longitudinal Health and Wellbeing Study. And at CLS, we're involved in this, leading the society and health and mental health components of, of, the, of this national core study. And this will continue at least for another year or so. And some of the we have done some work on, as I, I mentioned, on the fellow scheme. Uh, we're currently looking on the impact of home working on mental health. Uh, this is another project which will be uh, this happening as we speak. We hope to have some results very soon. We will be looking at inequalities in long COVID and so on. So this is kind of a short-term, short-term kind of plans. And long term, my long term plans is to, you know, continue working in the British birth cohorts and engage and do policy relevant research, of course, with a focus on population health, which is my particular interest. It's so multidisciplinary, like you said, I look forward to, to keeping up to date with some of those findings, especially those longer term impacts of the pandemic. Thank you so much, George. It's been really interesting to learn more about your work. I've learned a lot about the British birth cohort studies and it's been great to hear how evidence from those cohorts has been used to inform and tackle such timely and complex challenges. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. You can follow George on Twitter at George Plubidis. Plubidis spelled P-L-O-U-B-I-D-I-S.
to learn more about his research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, we have our archive of 13 past seasons available for you to listen to. Search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts to find episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 